come to me I hear a sound busy like traffic headed out of this town Hello and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Sibelle Kaler and this is the show where I bring you all the fascinating stories from UCI's professors, grad students, and researchers. Today on the show I have Nalia Rodriguez, a PhD student in sociology. Nalia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sibelle. Um, so excited for our conversation today. First off, uh, what kind of work do you do as a PhD student in sociology? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my research kind of focuses on a lot of different things, but mostly on race. So I'm interested in um, police violence, gang violence, and um, racism and colorism, in particular uh, in the Salvadoran context. Right. What kind of political issues is El Salvador currently facing? I would say that the two biggest issues currently in El Salvador, first and foremost, is the issue of gang violence. I think that that's been an ongoing issue since the Civil War, um, but one that's kind of related and also uh, has been happening for decades has been issues about water rights. Oh, could you expand more on that? Yeah, so there has been an increasing move to the privatization of um, different industries in El Salvador. And lately, there's been a push for the privatization of water, but privatization of water has been happening or attempting to have been happening for, for many decades and is an issue that we've been seeing a lot since before the Civil War as well. What kind of effect has that had on the population? So one of the major effects has been uh, not allowing people access to clean water, um, specifically thinking about the construction of dams in areas where people already have limited clean water access um, and the construction of dams in these areas kind of prevents people, especially poor people and indigenous and black people in El Salvador from being able to live, right? Because we need water for so many different things, for bathing, for drinking, for eating, right? Of course. Um, could you speak more on how that specifically targets people of certain races? Yeah, so the areas in which we see privatization of water, um, creation of construction of dams and things like that, we also tend to see them in areas where there are higher concentrations of indigenous people. And one of the places that we there is a current um, fight against the dam is in uh, an area in El Salvador called Nahuizalco and also in Tabasco for a long time. And what initially led you to this field? So I'm actually a former gang member and I'm also Salvadoran. So that kind of um, my research, my entry into research was really trying to understand why it is that Salvadorans are always talked about in relation to gang violence, but also trying to understand my own relationship to gang violence growing up as a Salvadoran in L.A. Wow. Could you talk more about that experience, your experience with gang violence? Yeah. So I'm from L.A. I'm from mid-city L.A. And 
the area where I'm from has used to have a lot of gang violence. And so I have pretty early memories um, from like when I was three experiencing drive-bys in my community, trying to understand why people were making homemade bombs, why um, police were shutting down my street almost every day, it felt like. Um, so yeah, so trying to understand why it was that my neighborhood was being a target for gang injunctions, why I was constantly seeing police, um, why people just had so much anger and what were they angry about and I was really angry as a kid and so trying to find a way where I could feel welcome like a group where I could feel welcome to me that was eventually a gang it wasn't what I initially wanted as community building but it was what was available to me and where I felt welcomed right is the situation with gangs similar in El Salvador or is it very different between El Salvador and the U.S.? I would say that there's a lot of similarities between gang violence in El Salvador and to L.A. I think we often think about El Salvador, you know, like in the headlines, they always talk about El Salvador as one of the most dangerous places in the world, right, because of the high rates of homicide. But we can find places that are equally as violent in the United States, right? And it's not a representation of the whole country. It's a representation of issues that are kind of targeting only specific groups of people that the media starts to sensationalize and tries to create like a larger issue out of something that may not be as big as it as it seems. Yeah, there's been a lot of misconceptions. What do you think has led to this, um, these cl- crime rates in El Salvador? One of the biggest things I think that has led to an increase in high high homicide rates is the implementation of mano dura policies, which are zero tolerance policing policies. And how we've seen this effect is uh, when they were first being implemented in 2003, 2004 in El Salvador, we started to see an increase, an exponential increase in incarceration and arresting of young boys and men in El Salvador. But what that actually did was just make people angry, people that didn't necessarily have any experience or affiliation to gangs at all, but people that fit a certain description, right? And so thinking about um, how the policies that we put into place, like governments put into place, impact the actual violence itself is, I think, something that we need to talk more about um, that isn't always being discussed. Yeah, for sure. Um, And in your research, you mentioned um, President Nayib Bukele and how he implemented these policies. What other changes has he made since being elected? So, Right now, he's only been elected uh, almost a year now. In March is going to be a year uh, since the actual election. But he's only come into power since about June of last year. So he hasn't really done very much yet. And part of what he has done is starting to implement these multiple phases or the first two phases of his plan, uh, territorial control, which is really just a revamping 
kind of like a modernization of the policing tactics used during Mano Dura policies. So thinking about uh, hyper surveillance as a mayor, one of the things that Nayib, the mayor of San Salvador, one of the things that Nayib Bukele, now president, implemented was trying to push for security cameras to be placed in uh, high-frequented intersections. The idea around these security cameras is that we can prevent crime by watching, right? By these surveillance, this panopticon type mentality. When the footage is available to try to combat crime, it hasn't been used. So one example of how we see that there was a couple years ago a case of a woman who was killed brutally by her husband um, and these security cameras so just to mention like a tad bit about the case so the woman was caught um, cheating on her husband with someone else and the husband got upset and chopped her up killed her chopped her up and as a sign of anger he stole her car and then started dropping off her body parts throughout the city, the capital city, in different locations. The security cameras caught this activity, saw, caught this man dropping her body parts in different areas of the city, but he still wasn't charged with any crime against this person, against his wife, his former wife despite having this footage. So really, like, what is the footage being used for? Who gets to be, quote unquote, safe, right? When we know that people are committing crimes and still walking away without punishment. That's terrible. Wow. Um, how has your experience um, being Salvadoran shaped your views on these politics? I think more so it's the fact that I have my personal experiences with gang violence that helps me humanize people. Um, as an undergrad, I did research on trying to understand what people were saying on social media about gang violence in El Salvador. It was honestly shocking and not shocking at the same time shocking because people were saying really terrible things one of the most common things that people were saying um were we should just kill them all them being the gang members as a solution for uh reducing gang violence but it's it's not shocking at the same time because i've also heard that in my family and I've heard many people in a variety of spaces uh, where there's a lot of Salvadorans and other just people in general share very similar sentiment. And that's a sentiment that I feel like is felt by a lot of people, not just Salvadorans. Yeah, it's astounding how much people are willing to dehumanize people just because oh they're a gang member especially with how young a lot of them are yeah I think that we often forget that 
people are young, right, when they join gangs. And, well, first, like, our brains aren't even developed. Second is that they're probably joining because they're trying to fight for survival. And our brains are programmed to do way different things when we're trying to survive than when we're just living a fruitful life, right? And not having to worry about when we're going to eat, when we're going to get water, when we're going to take a bath, right? Yeah. It's a completely different life than a lot of people who judge them are familiar with. Yeah. In your opinion, what should be El Salvador's course of action um, to lower the homicide rates? Well, I think that my my research shows that the first course of action should be more opportunities for jobs and education. So for programs to create those things, part of what I what I found is that 65 percent of people that were surveyed in this uh, Latin American public opinion project survey that went out in 2016 is that 65% of people want jobs and education as a way to reduce homicides. And if we know that homicide rates are largely impacted by gang violence, we know that we need programs for jobs and education, not only for youth that are involved in gangs, but also for youth that aren't in gangs. And I think that they should be separate because the needs are very, very different, although similar. They're different um, for, for youth that have already been gang involved. Could you expand more on uh, those different needs? I think part of the needs are having to deal with trauma, um, the types of trauma that people experience within the gang dynamic itself is very different than the um, traumas experienced from an outside member. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so you found that um, most of the people were in favor of using jobs and education um, to prevent them. Um, did you find anything else about um, trends in public opinion uh, in the country? Do you mean in relation to gang violence, to crime, or... Uh, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, and kind of was a place where I started off when I began this project was I know that there when we look at the prisons in El Salvador... Majority of the people, if not all, are dark-skinned. And so I wanted to understand why, like, I know I've experienced racism in El Salvador in my own family. Uh, and I wanted to know, is there this relationship, right, of opinions? I had just done this project in undergrad where I saw people were saying, let's kill them all. And so I wanted to know who is saying that? Like, actually, though, like, who is saying we should kill gang members? And so what I found, the other really interesting thing that I found in my research was that actually non-white people are m more likely to want jobs and education over white Salvadorans. And the same goes when we break it down by skin tone type. Darker skinned people were more likely to want jobs and education over light skinned Salvadorans. 
And so I think that this points to a larger conversation that is not talked about like at all in the Salvadoran context about gang violence, which is there is structural racism in El Salvador. Yeah. Uh, Could you talk more about the history of this racism in El Salvador? Yeah, I mean, if I were to give a just a brief history, I would say it starts with colonization. (laughs) Um, But really, I mean, we can see. I think the the biggest moment in Salvadoran history that gets talked about a lot on race is the genocide, ethnocide that happened in 1932, where indigenous people were massacred um, because they were fighting for equitable land rights, access to clean water, um, access to education, political rights. And that was in 1932, right? We're not that far. We're not even 100 years away from that. We're not even 90 years yet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But there have been indigenous movements continuously since then. Um, And I think that this can be seen also, this legacy can also be seen in the Civil War um, and a lot of the organizing that happened and particularly where certain types of violence occurred is also uh, violence from the state is also indicative of these larger issues, especially like with the ongoing um, water rights battles against privatization. I can say that. Um, That's where we we continuously see, I think, these unequal access Right. Uh, And for those who don't know as much, um, could you talk more about what colorism is and how that has um, affected people in El Salvador? Colorism is kind of a derivation of racism where lighter skin tones are seen as the top of the racial skin tone hierarchy. Um, It is a result of these like Eurocentric ideals of beauty. And so thinking about um, colorism is to think about how Eurocentrism and white supremacy infiltrate our understandings of beauty, of what um, certain people can do based off of what they look like. Um, that's like employment or just walking down the street, right? Thinking about racial profiling, stop and frisk. Yeah. What have been some of the consequences of Bukele's policies on harsher policing? Well, some of the consequences is the fear of the breaking of democracy. I think that has been the largest response from people both in El Salvador and in the diaspora in Nayib Bukele's attempt to ask for more money, he inadvertently threatened the democracy of the country. And he did so by trying to go around the legislative body through intimidation. Wow. Um, are there fears that he could um, take more of a dictatorship role in the country? 
I think that that is kind of what it's looking like. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that, um, especially the ways in which he has chosen to rule. Um, some people dub him like the Trump version uh, of El Salvador because he's also very much invested in uh, presidency from Twitter. Right. Yeah. Um, how have activist efforts opposed Bukele's policies? There have been multiple strikes. I mean, sorry, not strikes, um, marches and rallies that have been popping up in El Salvador, in L.A., in D.C. People are not excited about his new plan. It's a continuation of the same old story, and it hasn't worked before, and it won't work now. Right. When will Bukele next be up for election? Uh, well, like I said, he just came into power last year. So in El Salvador, pres presidential elections are every five years. So he still has some time. <laughs> wow. Um, is there going forward? How how do you think um, El Salvador could turn away from these efforts? Well, I think that one way to turn away is actually by turning in. I think reflexivity is one of the most important thing tools that we have in life. Um, I think it's important because there's already a lot of different tactics being used in the country to reduce homicides. There are there are over 40 towns in El Salvador that have consistently had zero rates of homicide. A couple years ago, I had gone on a delegation trip with a, an organization based out of Oakland, Crescent, Oakland. Um, and what I was finding was that some of the towns that we visited, they had large high rates of homicides high rates of gang violence most of their youth were dying and what they did what the mayor there was a change in leadership and politics of the town of this one particular town and all of a sudden in a few years they had zero rates of homicide and what they did was implement programs for uh, soccer. So when I went two years ago, they were opening, they were having their grand opening of their soccer school that was fully funded. So students didn't have to pay for going to go learn how to play soccer. They also were providing scholarships to go to school both at the uh, primary uh, high school level and also for university level. And so thinking about how towns are mobilizing themselves to find the resources, uh, whether locally or internationally, transnationally, to find these same opportunities, right? These educational opportunities um, to survive and have a different life. And, and I think that it's working in a lot of different places where 
we are seeing, yeah, zero rates of homicide. And why is that? A lot of it is just community building and jobs in education. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. In in your experience, um, were those kinds of education and community programs something that helped you escape gain violence? Yeah, uh, I would say part of what helped me was realizing that the structure itself of the school that or like the schools that I went to weren't what I wanted, but they provided a place for safety in some cases. Not all schools are safe, but I was given access to by a teacher um, to use her room as a safe space where I could talk about my experiences um, outside of school in her classroom. And I could have basically like a therapist that I didn't have. I had like really terrible experiences with therapists my whole life. And now I had access to a teacher that was providing a space where I could be vulnerable and where I could go to when something was happening in my life. I could easily be called out but from other classes to her classroom just to have a time out, right? Yeah, I think that's incredibly important, especially for kids. Um, how do you think the situation with um, racism and policing is um, similar or different to what we're facing in the U.S.? Well, I think they're very similar. I think that historical contexts um, of racism of colonialism kind of changed the ways in which things pan out. Um, but I think that they're structurally very similar. And I can give you an example. So one of the earlier Mano Luda policies was the implementation of something called La, Tarje La Tarjeta Roja, which is the red card, which is a play on soccer. Right. So in soccer, you get two cards, a yellow card or a red card, and then you're kicked out. So that was kind of the pol the logic behind the policy, where if you get one conviction, second conviction, now you're like incarcerated for life. So that policy, the red card policy actually stems. It's almost verbatim copied from the California three strikes law which is currently in place, where the three strikes law, three strikes and you're out is based off of a baseball reference because that's what people play here. La tarjeta roja, the red card, is a play on soccer because that's what they play. <laughs> right. Um, do you think that that's a helpful policy? I don't think it's helpful to incarcerate anyone for their whole life. I think that it does way more harm than good, especially if the structures that are created already are built to target certain people. So mm -hmm. the system is working. It's doing its job. We need to destroy the, that system because it's not what we want anymore. It's not how we should be living. Yeah, especially like lately we've seen how much prisons are in proportionately incarcerating people of color. Um, how do you believe we can attack this structural racism in the US? 
I think that the only way to to tackle structural racism is actually um, doing something about the structure itself, right? Structural racism survives because it's created to survive. And we need to find ways to destroy the institutions, the structures, because we know that time and time again, they replicate the same inequalities. We see that here at UCI, right? Um, we see it throughout the whole UC system, especially right now with uh, the strikers at Santa Cruz fighting for a cost of living adjustment. Yeah. Um, and how can Americans um, who are not familiar with these issues be more informed of politics in El Salvador and other countries? What would you recommend? I would recommend reading, but like reading widely. There is so much media bias everywhere, not just in the U.S. It's everywhere, especially in Latin America and most especially in El Salvador. Media in El Salvador has largely been concentrated in the hands of a very few group of families. And so thinking about how stories are um, told in different outlets can change. Just as in the U.S., it does so in the same in in the same um, Salvadoran context. So reading and talking, but also I like love social media and I think it's a really great way to connect with other people. And there's so many social media outlets out there right now that are putting out information that can be really helpful just to learn like quick facts. Um, you don't even have to have like in-depth knowledge to be able to understand that people deserve humanity. But I think that it's our, our duty to stay informed and stay informed from a variety of outlets, not just one source. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated it. Yeah. Um, so listeners, again, that was Nalia Rodriguez, a PhD student of sociology here at UCI, speaking on racism and criminal justice in El Salvador. Um, I'm Sabelle Kaler. This is Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM signing off. Um, listeners, have a great day. Um, stay safe and be kind to each other out there. can grab it and head on out of this town if I had a dime for every time that I thought of you I would be through scraping for crumbs behind the sun you would be mine if I had a dime if I had I believe without a sign.
静唱。